Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, let me first of all thank Carter for inviting me. Uh, we have been hearing for several years about the tremendous quality of these meetings from our colleagues uh, here in La Jolla. Uh, we have also been invited to come here, but this is actually the first time that we managed to, to do so. I would also like to thank the Mathers Foundation and my good friend Jim Handelman for being such a good supporter of this group. And also I'd like to say that it's a pleasure to be here at the Salk Institute, which as many of you know has been for me and for Hannah also one of our intellectual homes since the 1980s. Now, Although all of this is very pleasurable, I have to say that when I got a letter that said that I had to speak for 18 minutes, and it is now 17.04 seconds, I was uh, pretty, pretty frightened. It made me think of the Royal Institution in London, where on the Friday sessions, besides having you in a black tie, they tell you you have to speak for 60 minutes, not one more minute, not one less minute, and besides, you cannot say good evening. Uh, and that is exactly the situation in which I feel, and great pressure. So what I did this morning was throw away my slides, uh, and instead of talking extemporaneously, I'm actually going to read some of the sections, and maybe we will land on the 20 minutes. I have no idea. So let me start. One of Stephen Zondheim's clever songs has an intriguing title, Art Isn't Easy. Well, it isn't, but talking about art is not easy either, and talking about art in the brain is worse. But here we are. Foolhardy as it may seem, neurobiology is daring to investigate the origins, features, and neural correlates of the artistic process, and even of aesthetic experience. One of the first problems faced by anyone talking about art is the diversity of objects of study. Jean-Pierre just alluded to that. Asked to participate in the meeting, all of us had quite naturally different arts in mind. Jean-Pierre naturally, as a great collector, he had the visual arts. I actually had music. Others will have had dance, painting, sculpture, perhaps poetry, theater, or film, or even design, such as in architecture. So the activities appear too diverse in substrate, practice, known historical development and style to fit comfortably under one single label. Nonetheless, there are some features shared by the arts, uh, and here's the first list. First, an attempt at expressing individuality, distinction, attractiveness, and novelty, invested with emotion on the part of the creator and with the capacity to induce emotions and feelings in the recipient. Second, a promotion in the recipient of an exercise of the imagination, resulting in the very least in a simulation of emotional states, and at its best, in an engagement with moral judgments and social and intellectual issues. So, in spite of the obvious difficulties, we do have some common ground here, without even needing to appeal to notions such as high art versus low art. Now let me also say that I disagree with what I could only call the savagery of pulling down the achievements of aesthetics to mechanical neurologizing and explaining the experience of art in purely scientific terms. Those who do so distract their audience from what is truly distinctive about art. On the other hand, there is a matter of origins, 
and motives behind art, and I believe neurobiology can and should attempt to discuss such origins and such motives, and this falls very much under the charter of Carter. So let me preview my proposal. Life is obviously precious, but it is also not so obviously precarious. Life is a complicated state that requires both energy and extraordinarily intricate maintenance processes. When that complicated process is successful, and of course it has been for all of us in this room, it is said that we are in a homeostatic state, a state in which the dynamic balance that keeps the parameters of our internal milieu within certain numerical ranges is achieved. Outside of that state, disease or death set in. So if you ever wonder why health care is such an important social and political issue, the answer is simple. Sliding into illness is easy, and medicine manages human life when life is affected by disease. So let me submit to you that one of the reasons why the arts first emerged, music, dance, painting, sculpting, poetry, theater, is precisely the same. The need to manage life, call it the homeostatic impulse. Um, it had a double-pronged effect, improving communication among individuals on the one hand, managing life on the way to well-being on the other. And of course, uh, I don't uh, need to remind you that there are many other additional explanations of why art played so well. We could cite E.O. Wilson's uh, marvelous suggestion that art succeeded so well in evolution because it made the artist far more attractive uh, in terms of sexual mates. Uh, and that's probably quite so. Just think of Picasso. He was even taller than me, uh, and he did very well. But to explain why I think that the homeostatic impulse was so important in art, I need to tell you some more about the evolutionary history of homeostasis. So I said that homeostasis requires the use of extraordinary computational power and physical resources so that survival is possible. But it's important to note that that uh, particular process began in earlier phases of evolution uh, to be managed non-consciously. In fact, guided by automated devices that regulate the balance of our chemistries within an organism. This happened first actually in single eukaryotic cells, cells with a nucleus, and very single cells at that, without a brain and obviously without a mind. Um, and it's very important to realize that the fundamental mandates of what becomes consciousness were in fact present in single cells uh, long before there was a possibility of conceiving deliberately of achieving something as uh, balance and survival. At some point, we added to those devices a process uh, called the brain, a structure and a process called the brain, and eventually a process that came out of that brain called mind that allowed us to get better at surviving. Even later, we added a protagonist to the mind, I like to call it the self, which is the possibility of referring our mental goings-on to our individual biology. The self engenders a concern for the life proceedings, and it allows individuals to seek well-being, a state far more complex and difficult to attain than mere survival. And it is only then that the game of life changes radically, and that we move from blind biology, which is neutral and careless, to the rebellious determination that brings on complex social behavior and eventually cultures and civilizations. 
I would like to add that I think that art can only emerge then and it becomes a critical component of that cultural evolution. Now I would like to ask you to close your eyes for a moment and dream of beginnings. And I think Jean-Pierre helped us into this by bringing on caves uh, into his pictures. And just imagine humans of long ago, before language made its appearance, but already mindful and conscious, already equipped with emotions and feelings, already aware of what it is to be sad or to be joyful, to be in danger or be in safety and comfort, to enjoy gain or suffer loss, to have pleasure or pain. Or think of humans not that long after language would have begun and place them in a cave. And now imagine how one would have expressed those states of which one was mindful. Perhaps one would express them by intoning. I'm thinking about intoning calls of danger or calls of mating, calls of gathering, calls of joy, calls of mourning. Shall I suggest even singing or humming such calls? The human vocal system is a beautiful musical instrument. Or imagine drumming, which, by the way, can be done on your own chest. Um, it's a wonderful instrument. Uh, imagine drumming as a mind-concentrating device or as a social organizing device, a drum to order, a drum to arms. Or imagine blowing on a primitive bone flute as a means of magic enchantment, seduction, consolation. It was not Mozart yet, it was not Tristan and Isolde, but a way had been found. And incidentally, in order for us to dream some more, if you go to Altamira or to Lascaux, you'll find that in the very same places where you have wonderful uh, visual art, and the first pictorial representations that can really be called artistic, they're also uh, excellent acoustics right in those places. And it's easy to dream and imagine that it's exactly on those places that sessions would have taken place where there would, in fact, be some kind of musical or dance performance that would go with the pictorial representations and which would have a tremendous social bonding effect. So at the birth of art such as music, dance, painting, there probably was an intent to communicate to others, but communicate what? Communicate information about threats and opportunities, about organizing social behavior, and about one's own sadness or joy. The intent, by the way, was probably preceded by a very natural discovery that when this happened, it had an effect that was positive. It worked. But a compensatory balance would probably have been achieved as well, and again, this could have been discovered. And if it had not, if there had been no compensatory balancing effect, how would the arts have prevailed? And all of that even before the marvelous discovery that when humans were able to produce words and string them together in sentences, not all sounds sounded alike. The sounds had accents and relationships among the accents. Accents could create rhythms, and certain rhythms could create pleasure. Poetry could begin, and the technique could eventually be fed back into the practice of music or dance. Of course, the arts came to look very different centuries later. The history of cultures has developed techniques, skills, massive intellectual elaborations for all the arts, much in the same way it is done so for medicine, science, or technology. So art could only emerge once certain, once certain mental features were established along the Pleistocene period in all likelihood. Let me itemize some. The discovery of pleasure from certain shapes 
and certain pigments, as well as the discovery of body decoration. The discovery of pleasure from certain features of sounds and certain kinds of organization of sounds. I'm thinking of timbres, pitches and their relationships, rhythms. The discovery of pleasure in certain kinds of special organization in certain landscapes, open vistas, proximity to living forms. Uh, and all of this had to be discovered in a setting of play and in a setting of practice. Also required was the establishment of progressively more complex levels of life regulation, beyond plain reward and punishment mechanisms and drives and motivations. I'm thinking of mechanisms of attachment and bonding, child-parent, male-female, emotions proper, centered both on the individual and on the group. In case of the group, emotions related to dominance, to leadership, to defense. Um, in the case of the individual, emotions proper, such as fear, anger, joy, sadness, shame and indignation, compassion, admiration, pride, contempt, revenge, all of those were in fact uh, emerging as envelopes of um, and, and highly complex computational devices in the brain, and all of them were characterized by an enormous intelligence, because they were in fact capable from their complex computations even before we were properly minded and conscious, they were able to de de uh, deliver extremely efficient um, behaviors. So the emergence of the arts was po possibly precipitated, as far as I can see, by two kinds of catalysts, and these are, of course, hypotheses and my preferred ones. One is the recognition of the value of communication, again, in alarm calls or calls about opportunity, and their intelligent exploitation and manipulation through variations, which, of course, play, human play, would easily induce. And second, events having to do with the engagement or the disruption of attachment and bonding processes and, of course, with a variety of other emotion-related phenomena. I mentioned uh, several before, but pride, admiration, shame, revenge, compassion would be very important prompts. Now, of course, art may have begun as a homeostatic device for the artist and as a means of communication for all, and I think that that is certainly my preferred uh, hypothesis. But today, on the side of the artist and on the side of the audience, the uses could not be more varied. Uh, in the very least, the art one practices and the art one experiences is, number one, still a privileged means to transact factual and emotional information. Of course, the epic poems gave us that, and it's quite interesting when you think of the novel of the 19th century and of the 20th century, certainly the first part of the 20th century before the uh, enormous development of science, uh, Literature was, in fact, a primary means of high-level transaction of information. Number two, a means to induce nourishing emotions and feelings of varied kinds and importance. Now, of course, all the arts do this in spades. Uh, film uh, and all the derivatives of film still continue to do this very strongly, but I would submit that music does this most of all and most importantly and most universally of all. Third, a way into exploring one's minds 
and the minds of others. Jean-Pierre again alluded to this and I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting that in this regard, again, literature was a fundamental means of exploration, um, but this was a function that was very rapidly usurped at first by psychoanalysis at the turn of the century, then by film, and now, for the good of many of us in this room, by neuroscience. In fact, neuroscience is probably the main competitor with those other artistic means of exploration and literature has more to fear from neuroscience as, as uh, uh, all, but I think actually the marriage of the two is uh, quite possible and desirable. Number four, a means to rehearse specific aspects of life. This remains one of the most important deliveries uh, or deliverables of art. And of course, Aristotle knew this very well. The entire uh, essays on tragedy talk about this and in fact about little more and privileged tragedy over comedy precisely because of the enormous uh, exercise effect that art can have, uh, the enormous rehearsal effect that it can have, which is of course the same reason why people can even go to uh, suspense films precisely to rehearse situations uh, without noticing so uh, in which they hope they will never be involved in. Um, next, a means to exercise moral judgment and moral action, and in this uh, uh, art, the arts remain perhaps um, unrivaled in general, a means into a life examined. So I would say that ultimately, because art has deep roots in biology, which I think are very easily recognizable and which I think, again, agreeing with Jean-Pierre, can be investigated quite solidly um, and has deep roots in biology and the human body, but because it can elevate us to the greatest heights of thought and feeling, Art is a valid way into the refinement that, uh, that humans long to achieve, a refinement that you're perfectly authorized to call a spiritual dimension, if you so wish. Um, in talking about this subject not too long ago, can we shut this thing? Um, in talking about uh, this topic not too long ago with uh, Jory Graham, one of the greatest living poets of the English language. Um, Jory referred, uh, she used a fabulous verb for this. She said, when we undergo art, and I said, Jory, that's an absolutely marvelous word. So I would say that, you know, I could summarize um, using her suggestion that when we undergo art, we change for the better. Now, let me close with answers to a couple of questions which have very much to do with the Charter of Carter. Charter of Carter is a pleonasm, by the way, but never mind. Um, so were the arts valuable in evolution? I would say yes. They had a direct survival value. They contributed to the development of the notion of well-being. They cemented social groups and possibly even helped humans move out of the Paleolithic. Why so? because they assisted with communication and compensated for emotional imbalances caused by fear, anger, desire, sadness, and grief. Also because they promoted social organization. Finally, because they began a long process of establishing a sociocultural record. Thank you very much. My specialty is uh, I study romantic love. I and my colleagues have put 49 people who are madly in love into a functional MRI brain scanner and studied some of the brain circuitry of it. 
17 who had just fallen in love, uh, 15 who had um, um, just been rejected in love, and uh, most recently 17 who report that they're still in love after an average of 21 years of marriage. So that's really what I, uh, I study, but I was invited to see if I can't integrate that with art, which I think is uh, my assignment and what I'm going to attempt to do. <laughs> Uh, as a young man, Darwin was annoyed at much of what he saw in nature. Colored stripes, tufts of hair, pendulous noses. He saw these appendages as cumbersome, as metabolically expensive. They attracted parasites, and foremost, they were purposeless. They undermined his theory that all traits evolved for a purpose. He was particularly annoyed at the peacock's tail. He once wrote to his son, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, every time I gaze upon it, makes me sick. <laughs> the puzzle finally galvanized him to propose his theory of sexual selection. He came to think that some traits evolved not to survive another day, but simply to play and win the mating game. Some, uh, some traits evolved so that members of one sex could compete with one another to win the opposite sex, what has come known as intersexual selection. Other traits evolved so that individuals uh, could attract a member of the opposite sex. This is a bald wakari, uh, a South American uh, monkey. Um, females think that red face is wildly attractive, uh, uh, probably because it's built by testosterone, just the way the red breast of a, a robin is built by testosterone in the spring. And in fact, we're not the only, they're not the only ones who are attracted to testosterone. <laughs> uh, the very strong human jaw, the very heavy brow ridges, the high forehead are also built by testosterone and are extremely attractive to women. And recently, in, 19, uh, in 2000, uh, Jeffrey Miller proposed that humans evolved a whole lot of other ornaments to attract a mate. All kinds of talents, he thought, evolved not by daylight, but by moonlight. Things like our extreme ability for poetry, our musical skills, our, our songs and dances, our ability to tell stories and dramas, our drawings and our paintings, our architectural ability, and many other things he reasoned evolved largely for the mating game. He reasoned that other animals didn't need these abilities to survive another day, but that those ancestors of ours who could speak poetically, create beautiful music, dance nimbly, draw what they saw, were regarded as more attractive, and that these talented men and women produced more babies passed on more of their DNA, and these human capacities became inscribed. This drive for art became inscribed in our genetic code. Ever since Darwin proposed the idea of mate choice, scientists have been examining traits that animals have evolved to attract a mate. There's so many words for uh, mate choice, it's remarkable. We, you read species after species. They are always attracted to some and not attracted to others. And they have created all kinds of ornaments in order to attract a mate. But what happens in the mind of the viewer, the individual who looks at the peacock's tail, who's impressed by the red face of the wakari? There's got to be many mechanisms in the brain of the observer. Mechanisms for observing these traits, mechanisms for appraising them and judging them, and also mechanisms for attracting 
to one individual rather than another. And those are what I am interested in. Basically, attraction, the motivation system in the brain that tells a peahen she likes this peacock rather than that one. It is this brain system, I think, that has evolved in almost all living creatures and that human beings have come to call human romantic love. I distinguish it from the other basic mating drives. The sex drive, W.H. Auden called it an intolerable neural itch. Uh, the poets from around the world have described all these in, in tremendous detail. Uh, the second of these three brain systems is attraction, uh, romantic love, obsessive love, being in love, infatuation. I think George Bernard Shaw summed it up quite well when he called love the ability to overestimate the differences between one woman and another. <laughs> Attachment uh, is the third brain system that I think evolved from mating and reproduction. I think that all three brain systems, uh, they're very complex brain systems, each one of them, but uh, uh, I think you can uh, boil it down to some primary um, uh, neurotransmitters and hormones involved with, with each. I think that they're basically different brain systems. I think the sex drive evolved to get you out there looking for a whole uh, range of partners. I think romantic love evolved to enable you to focus your mating energy on just one at a time. And I think that attachment evolved to enable you to tolerate this human being um, <laughs> at least long enough to raise a single child together as a team. And I would guess that all three of these basic brain systems would have generated a tremendous amount of ornamentation and response to ornamentation that I would, uh, I think, are the very origins of the arts. So, in studying romantic love, I um, will just point out a little bit of the art of it, and then what it is, and then what we found in the brain, and then and then bring it back to art. Um, I first had to, in understanding the brain system that I'm most interested in, is the attachment system. Oh, and um, and so I had to look around the world to make sure that this was a universal human experience. Uh, the world is littered with the artifacts, the artistic artifacts of human romantic love. Indeed, this is an example um, of, a, of a temple in, in Tikal, in the jungles of Guatemala. It was built by a man called Casa Canchaul. Um, he was the grandest sun king of the grandest New World civilization, the Maya. He lived uh, into his 80s. He stood over six feet tall, and he's buried beneath this monument sometime around 720 AD. And Mayan inscriptions proclaim that he was madly in love with his wife. So he built this temple, he built a temple in her honor, facing his. And every spring and autumn, exactly at the equinox, the sun rises behind his temple to perfectly bathe her temple in his shadow. And as the sun sets perfectly uh, behind her temple, it perfectly bathes his temple with her shadow. In this case, a man has expressed his love for a woman with architecture, math, and astronomy, the arts. Everywhere on earth, people love. They sing for love. They dance for love. They compose poems and stories about love. They tell myths and legends about love. We have love charms, love potions, and love magic. We pine for love, we live for love, we kill for love, and we die for love. It is one of the most powerful brain systems on earth. 
and I think the origin of many of the arts. So I want to go through some of the basic characteristics of it, uh, and then what we found in the brain and what this has to do with the arts. The first thing that happens when you fall in love is a person takes on what I call special meaning. As Emily Dickinson point, uh, summed it up, she said, the realm of you. Then you focus on this person. Everything about them acquires power. The car they drive is different from every car in the parking lot. <laughs> the street they live on is different from every other street in the universe. And in fact, everything that they touch has meaning for you. And this is a poem uh, by a, a ninth century poet called Wan Chen in China. To illustrate, he illustrated this point perfectly. It's called the bamboo mat. He said, I cannot bear to put away the bamboo sleeping mat. The night I brought you home, I watched you roll it out. You have intense energy when you're madly in love, as one man in the South Pacific wrote in a poem, I felt like jumping in the sky. Euphoria, mood swings, bodily reactions, emotional dependence, boy, the amount of poetry on that is staggering. The, uh, uh, a very good one by um, Walt, Whitman, one, Walt Whitman, one line in which he says, oh, I would stake all for you. Uh, real frustration, attraction, when you can't get this person, you just try harder. I think we're beginning to understand some of the brain uh, physiology of that. Um, intense possessiveness, you know, if you are sort of casually sleeping with somebody, you don't really care if they're sleeping with somebody else, but when you're madly in love, uh, you become intensely possessive of them. The three main characteristics of romantic love are real craving for emotional union. Yes, you'd like to go to bed with them, but what you really want to do is have them call, have them write, have them email, invite you out. Uh, um, intense motivation to win this person, what a human being will do to win a person is just staggering. And uh, I think perhaps the, most, uh, the single most powerful uh, part of romantic love is the obsessive thinking. There's somebody uh, camping in your head. I asked a lot of questions to these people before I put them in the MRI, but um, the most important question for me was what percentage of the day and night do you think about your sweetheart? And they would say, I go to bed thinking about her. I wake up thinking about them. I never stop thinking about them. And in fact, those were the people that we would put in the machine. <laughs> These machines are expensive. Uh, I think another powerful characteristic of is that it is involuntary and very difficult to control. As Stendhal once said, love is like a fever. It comes and goes quite independently of the will. And indeed it does. So having establish some of these main characteristics. What I did is to sort of cull all the psychological literature of the last 40 years to find this um, host of traits, constellation of traits associated with romantic love. I then did my own questionnaire study on 800 Americans and Japanese to make sure that I found these traits in two quite diverse populations. And then I organized a team uh, with Art Aaron uh, uh, from SUNY Stony Brook, social psychologist, Lucy Brown, a neuroscientist from Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and uh, Deb Mashek, uh, Greg Strong, two uh, graduate students at the time, and Hai Feng Li uh, ran our machine, our machine. And we began to put people in the MRI. <laughs> you can't get two people in an MRI machine, but this was the New Yorker's concept of our, our work. 
We found a great many things, but um, uh, just to say, just a couple of them. We found activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain uh, called the ventral tegmental area, in particular cells called the A10 cells that actually make, uh, produce dopamine and send dopamine to many brain regions, but primarily uh, to the reward system, the brain system for wanting, for focus, for motivation, for pleasure, for craving. In this case, the motivation to win life's greatest prize, uh, the appropriate mating partner. In fact, it's exactly the same region that becomes active when you feel the rush of cocaine. And here's one of our, our scans. And that led me to believe that uh, romantic love is really not an emotion. There's a lot of emotions involved in it. There's a lot of cognitive processes involved in it. But it's basically a drive, a basic mating drive. It has many of the characteristics of, um, of, of, a, of a basic drive. The most interesting for me, I think, is the... Um, uh, the lack of facial expression. You know, when somebody's angry, uh, you can look at them and you, you, their face it tells you they're angry. Um, but you can't look at somebody and know whether they're hungry. You can't look at somebody and know whether they're thirsty. And you can't look at somebody and know that they are in love. And so, in fact, I think it's a very strong drive, much stronger uh, than the sex drive. You know, if you ask somebody to go to bed with you and they say, no, thank you, you don't kill yourself. Around the world, uh, uh, the uh, staggering amount of uh, crimes of passion due to this basic mating drive. So having studied um, um, what happens in the brain when you're happily in love, I came to thinking what happens in the brain when you've been rejected in love. And in fact, I think that's a far more important experiment, largely because um, you're not a menace to society when you're madly in love and you're happily in love. Uh, people become a menace to themselves and to society at large when they've been rejected in love. And what we found in the brain was activity in many brain regions, just going very briefly. Uh, you remain madly in love uh, when you've been rejected. If anything, you love the person more because barriers intensify the experience. Uh, we found uh, activity in some of the central uh, brain regions associated with craving, addiction, and risking, and also uh, activity in a brain region associated with deep attachment to this individual. That's a bad combination uh, of things. Uh, some of our brain scans. And I came to believe that love is an addiction, an exceedingly powerful addiction, a wonderful addiction when things are going well and a perfectly horrible addiction when things are going poorly. And when I listen to the love songs uh, in Western culture, uh, read the poetry from around the world, um, look at the dramas, uh, 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 look at the dance, uh, uh, most of the arts are about rejection in love, about lost love. And it may be because uh, you're driving dopamine up so high in the brain, and dopamine has been associated with, um, with creativity. And of course, you're up all night, so you've got to do something anyway. And, uh, and so you are in this heightened state of anxiety. I would suspect that most of, a great deal of the arts have been generated uh, from this experience. Um, we then did our most recent experiment. The leader on, the first author on this was um, Bianca Acevedo, a graduate student at the time. We wanted to find out um, uh, if it's true that you can sustain feelings of intense romantic love, not just attachment, not just loving, but being in love uh, long term. So we put uh, 17 people who had 
who reported that they were still in love after an average of 21 years of marriage into the machine. And indeed, we found activity in the same brain part of the ventral tegmental area uh, that shows um, intensity when you have just fallen madly in love. So it's possible to do. Um, what's interesting is um, we found also activity in brain regions associated with attachment. And what we found that was totally new was activity in brain regions associated with calm and pain um, uh, suppression. So we came to believe that when you're in love long term, you still want, can't wait for the person to get home, can't wait to talk to the person, want to share your things with the person, want to be with the person. But that early anxiety and intensity is now replaced by calm. And I want to tell you, it's very difficult reading world poetry to find any poems written by people in this last, uh, uh, <laughs> because you are asleep all night and you're not in a state of anxiety uh, to do this. So um, I think that, um, that uh, here are two of our scans from, um, uh, about uh, remote, romantic love and attachment. I think the um, drive to love uh, evolved. Uh, as I say, I think that all animals love. There's some wonderful descriptions by Darwin of, of, of other animals that love. He has a wonderful description uh, in The Origin of Species of, of, a, of a mallard duck who falls in love. And he uses the word, uh, fell in love with a, with a pintail duck. Well, it's a duck of a different species. We all make mistakes. That's one we ought not to make. Uh, um, and I think that um, this brain system among our ancestors probably didn't last very long. Uh, uh, it, it appears as if a rat will feel that, express that attraction for about 30 seconds. A fox will express it for about 20 days. An elephant will express it for about five days. And indeed, our, our ancestors will um, express it um, for a period of the month around estrus, but, but certainly not all month long. And they didn't have to. Uh, females um, needed, uh, didn't need a mate to help them rear their young. They carried their babies on their backs. Uh, they, uh, they lived in the trees where they were protected. But I do think that the beginning of romantic love, and perhaps even the arts, could have evolved by three and a half million years ago when our ancestors began to stand up on two feet. Females began to have to carry their babies in their arms. And I think they began to need a mate to help them rear their young. And with this, I think we see the evolution. Uh, there's some indication already that uh, the evolution of pair bonding could have evolved by um, uh, more than three million years ago. And the evolution of pair bonding, which is a remarkable thing. You know, 97% of mammals do not pair up to rear their young. Human beings do. And uh, I think with the evolution of pair bonding in, 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 the, in the human past, we evolved the evolution of um, uh, our, our version of human romantic love, something that we see around the world today. Thank you very much. Just to remind you, because you are much more exposed to language, that music, uh, like speech, is very old, universal. We can discuss the fact that it is a human trait, maybe later, acquired very early and spontaneously. There is no specific tutoring to learn how to sing and how to respond to music. And what I'd like to stress is that it is multi-systemic. 
that is, there are multiple systems that are involved in our way to respond to music, like to speech, uh, and uh, among those, uh, that is perception, learning, emotion, and action, but among those, I think that really the emotional system is the most important, that best explains the ubiquity and utility of music. And, uh, but before I go into uh, the um, uh, emotional part, I'd like just to stress the way we study music. There, there was some uh, discussion about what it is art, and I'd like just to specify the way we study music uh, uh, and what I call the functional music. That it is a music that is really intended for the majority, for everyday singing, for enjoyment of music. It is also appealing to uh, everyone, like uh, folk, jazz, uh, soundtracks of uh, films. It is also participatory most of the time. It's for dancing, for singing together and also it's often public and social. This kind of music has really little prestige, uh, but it is, I believe, closer to the conditions under which most people in most cultures through history have interacted with music. So now I'd like to give you a glimpse at the emotional power of music. I'm pretty sure you all have your own idea of what kind of power it has on you, but I'd like just to give you a few facts, just to tell you that it is not magical. It is, there are scientific facts supporting this emotional power of music. So I will illustrate in medical context, in social and context, in personal context, in soundtracks of new movies, and also the side effects of this, uh, of this power on intelligence on, and on uh, cognitive recovery from stroke. And I will end uh, with the hypo current hypothesis regarding the evolutionary origins of this power. The first one is uh, uh, the idea that mu music really induces relaxation. In fact, we tested that in a lab with a classical situation of stress. Uh, I mean, we, poor students, we stress them to give a speech uh, on a very obscure topic, very difficult topic in front of a committee, and we measure their cortisol every 10 minutes in the saliva. The cortisol is the stress hormone. And what you can see here is that the usual reaction is here. If you can, yeah. Uh, here, it, is, it reaches a peak, which is very high, and then go down to baseline. But when you present music like this one, so what you can see is that it does decrease uh, the cortisol level compared to when there is no music. So the idea is, well, maybe this kind of music is distracting, especially when I'm speaking at the same time. <laughs> so we tested the idea in another situation, which is also quite known, is the situation that music can help you to reduce the sensation, the unpleasantness of pain. So the way we do that in the lab, we just uh, apply a, a thermode like this one, and usually not to the foot, but to the arm, and increase the temperature. And uh, the temperature can reach the 48.5 degrees represented here, and it's quite painful. 
And what we do at the same time, I mean, I'm not doing this kind of experiment. Uh, <laughs> we present either uh, um, uh, pleasant music uh, that is with high arousal or uh, unpleasant music with equally high arousal. So it is, they are equally distracting. Let me, uh, very briefly, I promise. <laughs> And now the pleasant one. Okay, so what you can see that with this kind of music, you do feel that, uh, less pain, that it is less unpleasant than when you have the other kind of music. And uh, it has been replicated in different situations. And what we know is that listening to music does decrease pain by 10 to 30%. So you know what to do when you are going to the dentist next time. Also, there are other situations when we know that music is activating uh, similar brain structures as other euphoria-inducing stimuli. So I'm happy to hear that love, uh, well, it's exactly the same regions that we, uh, Helen Fisher was referring to with uh, a romantic love. That is, how it was done, it was uh, they asked musicians to select the, the music that would uh, elicit cheers and they put them in the scanner. And uh, what they observe uh, with this kind of music. And what they observe is that as intensity of cheers that they could measure was in, were increasing, then they could observe more activation into those regions in the brain that are really related to reward and motivation, like the nucleus accumbens or the ventral striatum. And these same brain structures are also involved in other euphoria-inducing stimuli like chocolate, romantic love, and cocaine. <laughs> but music is not only pleasure. Music also can induce anxiety and you only know it through the listening to the soundtrack. So just to, for you to, have, to remind you of what you experience in the uh, theater, this is without the soundtrack. So now you will appreciate. Can you put it loud, please? need any data, but I will still give you a few facts. Uh, with, I mean, it's well known that one structure in the brain, a different one, of course, than the one we were concerning, concerned about uh, just uh, for pleasure, is the amygdala. This is an hormone uh, that is here in the limbic system, 
a very small structure that is known to be involved in all situations that are related to danger. But it had never been uh, studied uh, in, with respect to music. So that's what we did. We test patients with damage to the amygdala. And we presented to them uh, clips, emotional clips like this one, that are kind of well controlled, and we know exactly what we are presenting. Just to give you an idea of how we test that in the lab or with patients. So this is supposed to express uh, anxiety, or we call them scary clips, versus is more relaxing. And what we found is that uh, we found a selective deficit after damage to uh, this uh, specific structure, the amygdala, just for the scary music. In fact, they were confusing the scary clips with the uh, uh, peaceful one that I just presented to you. It was not due to a perceptual disorder. So these facts are just illustrating that music can act like other socially and biologically important stimuli. What I wanted to mention too is that it has side effects, it has cognitive benefits. And you certainly have heard about one of these, the Mozart effect. So let's imagine I present to you 10 minutes of this music. supposed to, to change in intensity, but for 10 minutes. And then I'll present this kind of task, the paper folding and cutting. It's a part of the uh, IQ testing. And I ask you to decide if it's A, B, C, D, or E. So it's not simple. And apparently after listening to Mozart, you do get an increase in the number of uh, problems you succeed to, to uh, solve relative to when it is uh, relative to silence. And if I present to you Albinoni, then it will decrease your performance re regarding to uh, silence. And you may think, all right, uh, this could, I mean, there, there has been a, a legend about Mozart that has uh, some uh, special effect on the on neurons or on networks, but in fact, it's just a mood effect. That is, the, the Mozart music makes you just feel better uh, relative to uh, uh, Dajo Binoni, and that is, has been really uh, uh, documented with different kind of tests. Another situation in which really music can change your mood and as a side effect will have uh, cognitive benefits has been recently published or reported uh, by a Finnish group from uh, Helsinki. What they did is that they uh, uh, took uh, 60 stroke patients and assigned them randomly to either group that was listening to musical tapes, to stories, or nothing. I mean, they had their regular therapy. And they assessed them every, uh, one week after the treatment, three months after the treatment, and six months afterwards, while they, they had that continued intervention, either music, speech, language, or uh, uh, the regular, the conventional ones. And what they found that on most tasks, cognitive tasks, there was a benefit. So there was a benefit for the, the musical group, 
which is here, compared to the control and the language group. And in fact, it was mediated by a mood effect because on those mood questionnaires, you could document the fact that they were the less depressed patients. And why, of course? We would all want to know why. Why music has such a power on us? And uh, of course, Darwin did raise the issue before, before us. And uh, he, he really wrote that uh, music must be ranked among the most mysterious with which uh, he, I mean humans, uh, are endowed. And we, we did hear about all the hypotheses earlier. I'd just like to mention what, uh, a few of them that I think are, are very important. Uh, one, we, we really have to keep in mind that it might have no adaptive function at all. And that uh, music can be just associated by chance to an adaptive trait. And of course, one important one is language or speech. So it might be that music was associated to uh, speech and, uh, and survived in our sp species. Uh, this is a topic that is really under uh, intensive research uh, nowadays. And uh, there is a book that uh, will certainly increase research in the comparison between music and language in the book by uh, Annie Patel, uh, Music, Language, and the Brain. And uh, this is really the research that is going on in several labs. But we don't have an answer that is really clear that uh, these are two independent faculty. Another well-known uh, effect, and this time it's not uh, the beautiful one we had, something else, but it doesn't matter. Music might have done everything there. Um, so the idea is really that music virtuosity is hard to fake, it's very demanding, and is highly prized. So it does impress uh, musical partners, and, uh, and it might work for both sexes. I mean, uh, uh, male may, may impress uh, female by their musical talent, but female can attract partners by their musical talent as well. So, and surprisingly, this is a hypothesis that would be very easy to test in the lab, and has never been addressed yet, as far as I know. Another one that is uh, really the dominant view in our field is the group of kin selection hypothesis. The idea is really that music has a, a value for uh, a cohesive force for, for creating bonding uh, am among uh, members of the same group and, uh, and a, 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 sub, a, a way to articulate this kind of group selection is just to uh, realize that a, a given group is also mostly formed of kin, and so if you do protect, uh, if a music is really helping the, 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 the bonding, it does help your genes. And one really well-known effect, and, well and again, this has never been uh, tested, so uh, again, it's an invitation for uh, research, but what we really know is that maternal singing does uh, have an impact on uh, 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 the regulation of arousal in uh, the, the baby, the infant. I mean, it's well known that lullabies will soothe the baby to sleep and that play songs will just arouse their attention. So this has been uh, relatively well established, although the other hypothesis is really uh, remain to be tested. Of course, we cannot test the role of music in the past, but we can test the utility of music today. So, and I thank you for your attention. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.